All right. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you here and worship God with you as we begin our sermon portion of the worship. Let us start with a prayer. Almighty God and most merciful Father, we humbly submit ourselves and fall down before your majesty, asking you from the bottom of our hearts that the seed of your word now sown among us may take such deep root that neither the burning heat of persecution cause it to wither, nor the thorn, thorny cares of this life choke it, but that as seed sown in good ground, it may bring forth thirty, sixty, or a hundredfold, as your heavenly wisdom has appointed. Amen. Let us turn to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. In your pew Bibles, you can find that on page 575. When you have found it, please rise for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. This is the word of the Lord. This is part two of a quick sermon series that I'm doing from last week and this week. And obviously, if you look at the title, it is uh, finishing the quote up from Joseph Stalin, where he quoted, or what he's, when he said, um, one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. We finished up a major section in our study of the book of Hebrews, and I wanted to take this quick break to address some questions that some of you have had that you addressed to me personally, but also some questions that were posed to the church at large. And last week, we looked at the first part of verse 5, what transgressions meant, or what willful rebellion look like. And this week, I'd like to go over that second line that we've read, where the Bible says that he was crushed for our iniquities. The word for iniquities is the word to convey perverseness or the bentness of human nature. The word pervert or to pervert means to turn away from the good. But the nominal person will hear the word pervert and think oftentimes think of sexual perversion. And perhaps you have wondered, and perhaps maybe not, maybe you haven't wondered, but perhaps you have wondered why whenever the word perversion is referenced, it's usually bringing up a picture of sexual perversion. Why is sexual perversion or sexual immorality such a big deal, especially in the Bible? And why does it seem like homosexuality is one of those sins in the umbrella of sexual immorality that people in the church today are willing to even bend over backwards to compromise on? Why is there an insisting in our churches today that God's word doesn't say what it says about homosexuality being sinful in God's eyes? I would refer to you to multiple passages in the Bible in reference to homosexuality, Leviticus 18.22, 
Acts 15, 29, Romans 1, 26 to 27, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10, 1 Thessalonians 4, 4, verse 3, and 1 Timothy chapter 1. Let me just read you one of those sections, and that is from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 to 11. And this is what it says. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Now, when you read something like this, you have to start asking questions, especially if we put this against what we see as laws and norms of today's society. So let me first ask this question, where does law come from? Where does law come from? Now, a non-Christian might not understand where I'm going to go with this, but if you have been with me for a while, you might know where I'm going to go. I had a friend who visited me last week who heard the first part of the sermon, and he's a pastor friend, and he came to me and he said, bro, you pulled no punches. And I wanted to respond, if you've been with me even for a month this was soft, bro. But anyway, um, this is something that I am a little surprised that people don't talk about more often and people shy away from. They tippy-toe around. Because if it's clear in the Bible and you're not teaching it in the church, then what are you teaching in the church? So oftentimes the word law is mentioned. When it's mentioned, we only think of the moral law or litigation, right? But let's take a non-moral law, like the law of gravity. Why do we call it the law of gravity or Newton's law of motion? Why not something like the concept of gravity? Well, when we refer to something as law, what we are saying is that there is a rule, either general or specific, but this rule, uh, under the same conditions, the same thing always happens. That's what we mean by law. And the law of gravity wasn't made up. It was discovered. Someone discovered the law of gravity. Law in that sense means we can't make it up. Law needs to reflect reality, something constant. Ultimately, law is something that is then discovered or revealed to us. You know you're breaking a law when you don't, or you don't understand a law. For instance, if you expect a ball that you throw up into the air to continue to go and traverse all the way to the moon, then you don't know the law of gravity, or you don't understand the law of gravity. And so Christians need to understand that laws are given to us. We don't make up laws as we go along. This is something that we are getting pushback from for today. It's like, no, no, no. Laws are made up. We make the laws. This is not true. The Christian understands that we are given laws. And so what happens then when we stop following God's law or moral code that we've been given for our flourishing? Remember, God's law is given to us so that we can flourish, so that we can be satisfied and happy to be really 
given this ability to enjoy life. What happens when we stop following the laws of God? Well, we see what's happening today. We see the decadence we are witnessing here, this very moment, this degradation that is hitting us at every level of society. Now, what I'm going to propose today is maybe going to make some of you unhappy. You're going to think I'm a hater. I need to preface this because I want to assure you I am not going to hate on the things that I mentioned. I just want to point things out because ultimately I'm going to give you a cursory glance at some of the things that we are going through. If you want to go through a deeper level, uh, I and my podcast host, we very, very happily and gleefully go through certain issues historically for over an hour and a half sometimes on some of this stuff, but we don't have that time here. But a cursory glance, a history or art. Let's take, for instance, art. Again, there are many artists here. I'm not hating on these things, okay? I, I want to keep on saying that. But art or the concept of art is supposed to reflect reality. And there is beauty in this reflection. I don't think art is beautiful in itself. I think its beauty comes from its reflection of reality with all its nuances and complexities and expressions, yes, and also a way that can be as simple, as simple as putting colors on a canvas. But as society degrades and becomes more perverted, that means it's turning away from truth and reality. Art is also affected. What we also consider beautiful also starts to change. Consider the verses in 1 Corinthians that Paul is talking about, and I'm going to try to put this metaphor and relate it to how we see art today. When he is referencing the body of Christ, he gives this metaphor of how we treat the physical body, comparing it to the truth and reality of how we are to treat each other in the body of Christ. And this is what it says in 1 Corinthians, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor, that, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And here's, here's where I really want to highlight uh, this portion. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has also composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, there, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, here's some basic wisdom for us. What we are seeing now is even a perversion of what would have been considered universally as accepted as honorable and modest. There is a flood of artistic expression now that is glorifying that means it lifts up. That means it puts on display and it is celebrated. It is glorifying what was once considered taboo or even disgusting. I have a, I, um, I don't even want to mention some of this stuff, but this is, this is our current state that we are in. Um, I actually heard someone mention this too in one of his talks that he mentioned 
scatological expressions have come into the mainstream. And I thought that was a very good observation. Scatological is in reference to um, poop. Poop is a euphemism. Uh, but we, we now have poop emojis to better express ourselves. You know why we have emojis? So that we can express ourselves when we communicate with one another. And so we have poop emojis to better express ourselves. We have poop paraphernalia, clothing, slippers, sandals, whatever it is. Why poop? How does a poop emoji, and this is the last time I'm going to say that word, how does that emoji help us in our expression and communication? Again, what was once considered taboo or at least uncouth to bring to public discourse is now a regular part of our keyboards in our emojis. And I'm sure that there are people that will argue that it's cute or even beautiful, Poop. I said it. I said I wouldn't say it, but seriously, that's a change. That's a shift. That's a shift that we should take notice of. In the 20th century, like the 1940s and 50s, brutalist architecture came into the mainstream with many people calling that beautiful. And if you are an architect, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But what is brutalist architecture? It was a reaction against nostalgic architecture, and it was inspired by a socialist utopian ideology. I'm going to explain it a little more. If you've ever seen a modern building that's gray, concrete, with little to no windows, without any decorative designs, that is an example of brutalist architecture. Um, it's a form admired by many architects of today in the Western world and also in China. China has one of the most biggest, one of the most biggest brutalist buildings in our world today. They spent, I think, something around $130 million just to build that building. It's supposed to be, it's supposed to be minimalist, and it's supposed to showcase strength. Again, think of concrete buildings that looks so strong that it would withstand a nuclear blast. It's the buildings that you would see standing when you watch a dystopian movie because in those dystopian movies, beauty and color are destroyed. So what stands? This brutalist architecture, gray concrete buildings with little to no windows. The allure, though, of brutalist architecture is its utilitarianism, its functionality. Apparently, though, uh, if you went to school in Boston, many of you have. If you went to Boston, Boston has the most brutalist architecture in all of North America. I've met many architects, actually, that like or appreciate brutalist architecture because of, again, the reasons that I've just stated before. They don't like nostalgia, and the only way that they see, um, the only way that is a way to the future that they see is brutalist. Um, they don't like uh, what they see in the past. They want something new. And so the future then, I would say, is they see the future in monochrome, concrete, and utilitarianism. I find that fascinating. I find that fascinating because ask a child, even in our church, ask a child to draw a house. It's almost always colonial, maybe sometimes Victorian. Why? 
Why do they always draw a colonial house or a Victorian house? Why? Because it's inviting, it's warm, it's colorful, it's beautiful, it's shapely. If you ask a child to draw a house, they don't draw a gray cube. They don't go, here's this gray cube, it's a beautiful house, right? But again, again, that might change too. That might change. I wouldn't be surprised. After you hear me say this, you might just think I'm simply hating on emojis and brutalist buildings. But I assure you again, I'm not. But again, I would like to also add, no one goes in front of a brutalist building and takes selfies. I was like, oh, we're great concrete. Let me take a selfie. No one says that. Now let me shift over. Remember, this is a very cursory kind of a view of what's going on. What about music? Let's go to art and music. A lot of modern music has now just devolved into being samples of samples. Samples of samples. Samples were used in the past to give the listener to like a throwback. Almost a nostalgic period of time in the past is now harnessed. It's kind of cookie-cuttered out, right? It's outlined out, and it's played over and over again in a loop. I'll give you a very famous example that I thought I was thinking maybe like 40, 30% of you will know this example. Uh, there is this artist called Notorious B.I.G. Anyway, he sang this very famous hit song, and it became a hit posthumously. It's called Hypnotic. He made this in 1997. There was another artist who helped produce this for Biggie Smalls, right? And his name was Puff Daddy, P. Diddy, Diddy, Sean Combs. I think his name is just Love Now, but who knows what's gonna, what it's going to change to. Anyway, he sampled a song from 1979. It's called Rise from Herb Alpert. And he sampled this song, and then he showed it to Biggie Smalls, and that's how a hit song was born. And if you are not into rap, hip-hop, or pop, even EDM, like electronic dance music that a lot of young people listen to, is, is an overproduced sample with a beat layered on top. I'm not hating. I'm just pointing out what we are all listening to, okay? I didn't get to watch the Super Bowl this past year, but I remember watching it last year when a lot of people got so excited to see Dr. Dre perform the next episode. It's a 1999 song that people were saying is such a good throwback. I'm sure many of you uh, will, are afraid now. It's like, oh, please, please don't hate on that song. Anyway, uh, but I'm not. I'm just pointing things out, okay? That's all I want to do here. And I'm sure many of you know that this song, the next episode, is a sample from The Edge by David McCallum, from 1967. The entire backtrack is just this song on a loop. The song, however, the last episode, the song by Dr. Dre featuring Snoop Dogg and all these other artists, the last episode, this was sampled from this 1967 song, The Edge. However, the last episode now is sampled in over, my last count was over 110 modern songs. So modern songs are sampling songs that are sampling other songs in the past. So we are now listening to samples of samples, of maybe even samples in the future. Now, I'm sure you might be wondering what law, art, music has to do with perversion and sexual immorality, or if it does even at all. Is there a place in the scriptures where this all comes together? And the answer is yes, I believe so. 
And if you would, if you want to, you can turn with me because I'm going to be reading some chunks of this passage to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. In the 32nd chapter, we are at a point where now Moses has gone up to the mount. Why? To get the law. There's the law, okay? And we hit Exodus 32. When the people saw, this is from verse 1, that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in, your, in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in the ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. I'm going to skip down to verse 15. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back. They were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. Now, the Lord would go on to do one of the most incredible events of all human history, an event that has echoed down thousands and thousands of years and even shapes us today. He delivers his people from Egypt And now they come to the foot of Mount Sinai, and while Moses is receiving the law from God, they don't know what to do with themselves. And so they ask Aaron to make them gods to lead them. Gods represent ideologies. They represent philosophies. Gods aren't just statues. Statues represent ideologies. In New York City recently, A few weeks ago, a new statue was put on top of the courthouse in Manhattan for display, and it's called Now. It's a golden statue of a naked woman with hair that is braided and coiled that resembles goat's horns, which, by the way, Satanists often use in their depiction of Satan. Anyway, and the only article of clothing that this statue is wearing is a judicial lace apron that the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg wore. The artist of this statue would tell interviewers that it's a statue promoting and fighting for abortion. Abortion, as far as we know, minimally has taken 60, over 60 million lives. But again, 60 million, a million, isn't that just a t- statistic? 
If I take every single one of those 60 million and I put a life and I put it on display for you to watch, I show you the potential, I show you the devastation in his death, 60 million, can you even handle that? But this artist would tell the interviewers that it's promoting and fighting for abortion, abortion rights, whatever it is, and this statue has been placed on top of a New York City uh, courthouse. By the way, the statue doesn't have any arms or hands. It just has tentacles sticking out where arms should be and legs should be. But this image is emerging from a pink lotus, which is traditionally a Buddhist symbol. It's a symbol, Buddhist symbol of enlightenment. But when the statue was installed, the New York Times wrote an article titled this way, Move Over Moses and Zoroaster, Manhattan has a new female lawgiver. Move over, Moses. And Zoroaster, Manhattan has a new female lawgiver. The Israelites told Aaron they want a new ideology, a new God. I don't need this old stuff. I don't need Moses. I don't need the Bible. We want a new ideology. And Aaron would fashion a golden calf out of the gold he would collect. Once the idol was built, the people would say that this was the God that led you out of Egypt. Here is this other ideology, this other religion, and this is the religion or ideology that will give you freedom. And once they did that, they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings to the idol. That means what was once reserved for God and God alone, worship to God, has now been flipped and now given over to this ideology, to this idol. And here is how that first section that I read ended. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That rose up to play is a euphemism for orgies or sexual immorality. I remember preaching on this section in our Exodus sermon series. And people came up to me and asked, how come there always seems to be sexual immorality in connection with rebellion against God? And I think that's an absolutely important question to ask and also have answered. Why is sexual immorality such a big deal? Because isn't love love? Love is love is love is love, right? Why should God care who you love? In fact, the list of sins that Paul would often give start with sexual immorality. So I agree. I agree with you. Even the naysayers, the Bible does make sexual immorality a big deal. And in rebellion against God, we almost always invariably see sexual immorality and the like perversions. Why? Well, simply put, God gives the law which gives order. And central to that order is the setup of a family. In the beginning, God would create male and female in his image. This was to reflect God's character, his goodness. When Satan would attack Adam and Eve, he wasn't just getting them to eat fruit. It was a comprehensive attack on everything that was core to creation order. He made them believe that they would be like God if they disobeyed him. Don't follow God's laws. God's laws are stupid. They're old. They're archaic. It's not even true, Satan would say. Go against it. Be your own gods. And so the Israelites 
also build a golden idol to worship and follow, and it would lead them to sexual immorality. All sexual immorality is, is an attack on the family. God's design for sex was between a husband and his wife. It's a sacred union of which even Jesus would reiterate in Mark chapter 10. They would ask him about divorce, and then he just reiterates the core of family union. And he would say in Mark chapter 10, verse 6, but... From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh, so that so they are no longer two but one flesh. And he ends it this way. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. When you separate this understanding, don't you understand it's a rebellion against God? The rebellious man is constantly trying to separate what God has joined together. That's why sexual immorality is such a big deal to pagans and people who hate God. I'm going to do more on this bit, but I would like to go down to the second portion of the passage that I read. When I first read how Moses would go down and Joshua would say that there's a sound of war coming from the camp, I was genuinely confused. Moses corrects Joshua and says, It's not a shout of victory or a cry of defeat, but it's singing. See, art is degraded in rebellion against God. It becomes ugly. You make for yourself a God with one of the most beautiful, precious metals on earth, and you make yourself a calf. Or you make a depiction of this tentacled, goat-horned, ugly thing that's supposed to resemble a woman, but looks more like a satanic depiction that Satanists use. And now the comment from Joshua. Joshua wasn't dumb, in my opinion. I don't think he was dumb. Was he confused? Was he hard of hearing? I don't think so either. I think music, like art, is supposed to reflect reality. And in it, we see its beauty. There are happy songs, songs of victory and triumph, songs that we sung. They are also beautiful when you hear of G.F. Handel's Hallelujah Chorus. By the way, G.F. Handel or people like Johann Sebastian Bach, they would be known to write SDG on their uh, pieces that they would compose. SDG stood for Soli Deo Gloria. They wanted people to know, as I write this piece, I'm giving all the glory to God. Soli alone, Deo, God, Gloria, glory. To God alone be the glory. They would write SDG on their pieces. Uh, in our Advent season, I had Junzak put up in our um, prelude time some of Handel Messiah's songs. And the final one, he actually decided to put up from Handel's Messiah the Hallelujah Chorus. And once Hallelujah came out, I almost stood up because I'm so used to standing up whenever the chorus is there. Now, it's uh, now so famous. When you hear the song, you go, Hallelujah. Everybody's like, everybody remembers it. Why? From a Handel Messiah chorus? Maybe, maybe not. But I think maybe more from sitcoms or comedy skits. Like when when, when a character in a show wants to express glee, They put Handel's Messiah, Hallelujah Chorus, up there. But that's a song of triumph. It's so popular, sitcoms would use to signify 
um, a character's glee. It's such a majestic song that it's rumored that when it was first played in the presence of the king, the king just stood up when the Hallelujah Chorus came up. And that's why there's a tradition. Whenever you go watch or listen to the, to the Handel's Messiah and this chorus comes up, the Hallelujah Chorus comes up, people stand up because it's a glorious song. It's about victory. It's about giving glory to God. Now, there are even tragic songs. Those are happy, triumphant songs. There are tragic songs, songs of defeat. Uh, most recently, to, for my daughter, who is um, old enough, I think, to understand um, Franz Schubert's Urkeling. Anyway, um, I introduced this song to her, and she looked at it, and she waved at the pianist, but, you know, it was in the TV, but... Uh, at eight months old, I think that's good. That's, that's old enough. Uh, so I introduced Franz Schubert's Earl Koenig, or uh, Earl King, or Elf King. That it's a, it's a poem that was written, and it's by, written by Goethe, and uh, Schubert put music to it. It's a very famous poem by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe about a father trying to save his child from death, and death is represented by this. Elf King or Earl Koneg, right? And it's, it's one of the more tragic songs you'll hear. He's on his horse. He's trying to get back home. His kid is dying. And you see the pianist go at it. And there's a singer that sings. Apparently, everybody in Germany knows this poem. That's how famous this, this poem is. It's, uh, it's one of the more tragic songs you'll ever hear because at the end, I'm going to ruin it for you, the child dies. The child dies in the father's hands. But I would say that this is a song that you would consider tragically beautiful because it points to the reality of death. It points to the reality of a father's love for his son that he would go through all his links and say, don't look at the elf king. The kid's like, I, I see the elf king. The elf king is like saying, is, is bidding me to come. It's like, don't look at the elf king. It's just a wind. It's just a wisp. And so it's, it's tragically beautiful. Moses would listen to the song in the camp. Going back to Exodus 32, Moses would listen to the songs that's playing in the camp, and he would say, it's neither one of those. It's neither a triumphant song. It's neither a tragic song. Remember, both of these reflect reality, and they're beautiful. Now, what is it then? If it's none of that, it means in that short amount of time that their music had devolved to a point where Joshua would be confused when he heard it with sounds of war. So what is music that is neither songs of triumph or tragedy? And it says it here. When we read the passage, it's songs to just dance to. Not about victory or sadness, but for revelry, for orgies and sex. Please tell me you can make this connection today. So what does art, today's art, music, and rebellion against the law of God have to do with perversion and sexuality, sexual immorality? Well, everything, everything. We are now in a place where men or women are not only not different. There was a song like in the 60s that I, that I saw uh, people would sing. It's like, I can do anything better than you. No, you can't. And then it would be like a, a back and forth, like between a man and a woman. I can do anything you can do. It's like, no, you can't. And then the other person would say, I can do anything you can do better than you. It's like, no, you can't. Anyway, not only 
are men and women not different, now we have come to a place where they are interchangeable. And we must not only capitulate, we must now celebrate it, along with the many gender transitions that we are witnessing today. But Christians, to Christians, this is something that we do because it doesn't reflect truth. It doesn't reflect reality. This is what Elizabeth Elliot would write. The late Elizabeth Elliot would write, I don't want anybody treating me as a quote-unquote person rather than a woman. Our sexual differences are the terms of our life, and to obscure them in any way is to weaken the very fabric of life itself. When they are lost, we are lost. I think that's quite prophetic and poignant, and it's true. The first reality, one of the first realities that we are given is the physical reality, the physical reality showing that we are either a man or a woman. But even that basic reality is being attacked. And then we are asking questions like this. What about love? What about love? What about attraction? Don't they play any part in God's design? And I would say, absolutely, absolutely. Read Ephesians chapter 5. Read Proverbs chapter 5, verse 18 to 19. Read all of Song of Solomon. Love and attraction play a huge part in God's design for love and sex. However, they are subordinate to his creation order. They come after his creation order. Love doesn't subvert the law. Love submits to the law. And so what does this love and submission look like? In Ephesians 5, let me just read this section for you. In Ephesians 5, verse 15, it says, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. That is another word for sexual immorality or orgies. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The question is, does the music and the art that you create, that you sing and display, does it give thanks to God in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ? Or does it lead to debauchery, drunken revelry, and sexual immorality? The contrast isn't posed by me. I'm not giving you the contrast. It's right here in the scriptures. This contrast is given to us in the scriptures because, you know what? We are sinners. We are given into perversion and perversion of every kind. That's why the passage in Isaiah is so poignant. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was crushed for our perversions. Perversion crushes us. This these allures of the world will never lead you, and it's the end of that passage I read in Ephesians 5, but it will never lead you to a place of thanksgiving. When you follow the allures of the world, it doesn't lead you to a place of thanksgiving. It leads you deeper and deeper to places of bitterness. Instead of the lie, instead of believing that lie that this is going to lift you up, instead you are crushed. You are crushed when you take what was supposed to be beautiful and treat it like dung. You are crushed when you take 
order which beauty reflects and instead flip it inside out and upside down. We are that people because when we were left to our own devices, we brought ourselves to ruin. Because if we simply went with what felt good or what we are naturally attracted or inclined to, we would slide right down to hell. There is a popular church mantra uh, that is in many churches today, perhaps. I don't know. I hope not anymore. But this is what I've heard. I shared this right now because I've heard, uh, people have asked me personally about it. And the question that they ask, I'll give you the mantra in a bit, but the question that they ask is, would a certain kind of person feel welcome at CGS? Would the LGBTQ feel welcome here at this church? When did someone feeling welcome become a standard for the church to be a church? Now, I'm not saying that a church should be unwelcoming, but the standard that is subtly being demanded is that everyone that come feel welcome. It's not enough to be welcoming. The party has to feel welcomed. And when that becomes the standard, Yes, churches will compromise, then they will capitulate, and then they will celebrate what God has clearly condemned in his word. And what you wanted to initially achieve by that first compromise will also be lost. This is what Burke Parsons says. Genuine peace and unity in the church are never achieved by compromising the truth, but always precisely by unwaveringly maintaining and guarding the truth. Compromising truth for the sake of apparent temporary peace always leads ultimately to division, disunity, and apostasy. Capitulating to the world's demand in regard to anything that is against God's law, and yes, especially his law concerning sex. We have the Church of England recently voting in favor of blessing same-sex unions. Capitulation here is contradiction to the word of God. And that means, that means you are no longer the church. When a church cannot call a sin a sin, you are no longer a church. Why? Because Jesus came to save sinners. The hope that you have when you come to listen to the gospel isn't that sin isn't a sin anymore. The hope that you have is in the one, the he in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. You see, Christ was given for us. He took our sins, and he was pierced and crushed where we should have been, so that whoever believes in him now will not perish, but they will have eternal life. And people often wonder, how do we get into this mess that we're in now? It seems like we're going to hell in a handbasket, they say. Is there a way out? And yes, the message is out there, and the churches are here to proclaim this truth. Yes, God has made a way in Jesus Christ. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
It's not about a sin not being a sin anymore, but it's about our sin that deserves punishment that God takes and puts it on himself and dying for us so that if we place our faith in him, we are now given his perfect life. We get to live the way he should have lived and we get to have this reward. We get the rewards and blessings of that perfect life. That's why this is the good news. This is why this is so amazing. Every time we wanted to sin, we wanted to capitulate, we wanted to celebrate, we wanted to do all these things that the world would want us to do. And when we do, we become worse off. We become even more degraded. We become even more decadent. Our society just going down in this decline. But we see that there is a way out. And that way God has given us in the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. God is powerful enough. That's why we repent. We turn from our sinful ways and we turn to the one that has the strength to save us. Praise God. Soli Deo Gloria for our salvation. Let's give him all the worship. Let's turn to him all the music, all the art. Let's turn to him all our bodies and souls and give him worship with all we have for all our lives, proclaiming Jesus as the true King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that during this time, even people close to us would try to obscure what you have clearly said in your word. But we pray that you would keep us a people that is unstained by the world by your grace. Give us strength. Give us understanding. Oh God, lead us by your Holy Spirit so that we are not led by worldly ideologies. Let it not taint us. Let, it, let us not succumb to it, no matter how great the temptation, but help us to truly understand the beauty of your law, the beauty of our Lord and your Son, Jesus Christ. Let's take this time to pray and reflect on what we have been given in his word, the gospel that we have been shown through Jesus Christ. And in your life, there are places perhaps that the Holy Spirit has convicted you to turn to him and give him glory instead of turning to worldly ideologies and worshiping yourself or something else. And so whatever that is, as the Holy Spirit guides you, lift it up to the Lord and believe that it is God who gives you the strength to turn to him and to follow him all your days. Let's pray.